0: Hey everyone, this is Patrick Brown. Welcome to another episode of Crown & Crozier, the podcast on church, state, and faithful citizenship. COVID-19 has been a dominant factor of our day-to-day lives ever since the World Health Organization declared its outbreak to be a global pandemic back in March, 2020. The church has certainly not been immune from the effects of the pandemic with impacts ranging from restrictions on access to the sacraments and debates around the theological and moral considerations related to COVID vaccines. How has the church fared in navigating these impacts? Has she distinguished herself in her response, providing an example that has been set apart from the ways of the world? Has church leadership made a clear and compelling case that pandemic or no pandemic, the laws of God will always supersede the laws of man? Joining us to help grapple with these questions is Philip Lawler, editor of Catholic World News news director at catholicculture.org, prolific author and frequent contributor to such outlets as EWTN, Lawler is one of the leading voices in US Catholic media. His latest book is entitled Contagious Faith, Why the Church Must Spread Hope, Not Fear in a Pandemic. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this installment of Crown & Crozier. There
1: are two swords. And the question is, which sword is superior, the spiritual sword or the temporal sword?
0: And without God, democracy will not
1: and cannot long endure. I die His Majesty's good servant
0: at God's first. Welcome to the Crown and Crozer podcast. Joining us today is Phil Lawler, editor of Catholic World News and news director catholicculture.org. Phil, thanks very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me on.
0: Well, it's the beginning of our second season of episodes here at Crown & Crozier, and this season is starting off in a very similar environment as our inaugural season, with uh, COVID-19 continuing to dominate the headlines and numerous aspects of our lives. But we're we're a year and a half into the COVID pandemic. It's a continuously shifting landscape, high tally of public health, economic, and social impacts. Phil, maybe you can just start us off by issuing a report card. Well, how do you think the church has done navigating this pandemic over the last 18 months?
1: Well, not well at all, I'm afraid. Uh, the church should be a beacon of hope in a time dominated by fear. And what troubles me, what frustrates me is how much the church or church leadership has contributed to the fear rather than trying to provide a counterbalance to the fear and how much Church leaders seem to have bowed to the priorities of the secular world, of the politicians around them, rather than setting their own priorities, which are on a different scale and a different, you know, an entirely different set of, of urgencies. And th- there are urgent things to be done in a time of pandemic in the spiritual world, and they should be taking priority.
0: Stepping back, looking at the past 18 months, do you think the church has demonstrated to its own members and also to the outside world that she has something unique to offer in times like these?
1: No, that's that's really my problem. That's the essence of the difficulty that I have here is that the church does have something unique to say. And when what the church is saying is basically echoing what you hear from leading secular politicians from the mainstream media, then that's an opportunity that's been lost. And it's a tremendous opportunity in this case, because as I say, we've been bombarded with the messages of fear. Mm. And the message that is repeated most frequently throughout the Bible is the opposite. Do not be afraid, be not afraid, fear not. And that's the message the church should be giving people. You know, we have developed a downright irrational fear of death in the sense that people are ready to change their lives entirely, to almost stop living their lives because of a fear that they might die of COVID. Well, it's of course reasonable to fear disease and very reasonable to fear death, but we are all going to die. And I think that part of the teachable moment here is to remind people of that fact. We are all going to die. The The challenge is to be ready. The challenge is to live your life up until the time that you die and to live your life in such a way that when you die, you're ready.
0: I think a good place to start, as good as any, we were just talking just now about whether or not the church demonstrated that it had something unique to offer or perhaps use a synonym as essential, Did the church have something essential to offer. And in the early days of the pandemic, many public authorities essentially declared that the church did not uh, by deeming houses of of worship and religious services non-essential. And yet, in response to that designation, in many corners of the church, not all, but in many, the church didn't really resist or oppose that designation. It actually went further on its own accord to impose more strict restrictions on worship and access to the sacraments than the public authorities themselves were stipulating. So again, with the benefit of hindsight, that particular response there in the early days of the pandemic, what do you think that revealed and, and how did that position things uh, for everything that followed?
1: Well, there are two different issues there, I think, or rather two different responses that were possible and, and should, have, should have been the proper response, were the proper responses. Uh, the first would be to fight on a political level to fight for the political rights of the church. If politicians say that worship is inessential, then it behooves us as worshipers to say, well, no, it is essential, this is our right. It's a human right, it's not a right granted by the government, so it's not a right that the government has an authority to take away. And to do everything within the juridical structures open to us to defend that right, for our sake and for the sake of all believers. Certainly in the U.S., the Catholic Church is the largest organized, single organized body, and people look to the Catholic Church for leadership and sadly did not get it on this level, on the level of resisting. There were a number of uh, small evangelical churches Mm. that were very successful in the legal field in challenging restrictions on worship. And it's it's unfortunate that there weren't Catholics out front. And that's the first thing. But the second thing is, if you lose those battles, uh, you don't lose the war. Because throughout her history, the church has faced governments that thought religion was inessential or that, that re- thought religion was bad, was, was a force to be conquered. And the church has resisted them. And if necessary, through civil disobedience and if necessary, absorbing some punishment if necessary, martyrdom. There's a long history of Catholic saints who have taken that route. And if we aren't willing to take that route now, do we owe them an apology? Or, or, you know, why do we honor the martyrs if we're not willing to do what they did?
0: So in in that regard, do you think there was something unprecedented, at least in recent historical memory, of many members of the church in response to that designation of non-essentialness essentially acquiescing and saying yeah yeah you're you're probably right and and we're not going to do anything to to re- to resist or oppose that declaration i mean how how novel how unprecedented in your view was that response
1: well i'm not a historian but as far as i can see it's utterly unprecedented that the church would be shut down by the leaders of the church there have been times when the church has been shut down forced underground but never at least never that i know of by the leaders of the church and i have to say this was something that really shook my faith very badly in the past couple of years because i have grown up understanding that there is the possibility of 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 uh, oppression of persecution religious persecution it's always a possibility uh, it's it's a reality in many countries thank god not in the country where i live but I was aware of the possibility that politicians, the police, might shut down the churches. It just took me completely by surprise, shocked me, scandalized me, threw me off balance that the churches would be closed by our pastors. That, that was something I could not understand. Now, maybe your next question is going to be, weren't there times in the past when the churches were shut down? People talk about during the uh, St. Charles Borromeo, during the mm-hmm. plague shutting down the churches in Vienna, which he did, but <laughs> he did that as a public health me- measure. He thought it was wise. And then he took the sacraments to the streets. Exactly. He didn't shut down the sacramental life of the church. He shut down buildings. The buildings aren't that important. Uh, the sacramental life is what's important. And to shut down the sacramental life of the church, I, I just can't understand why you would ever do that under any circumstances.
0: The, the analogy that came to mind in my view uh, as as the p- pandemic progressed in the early months was that of fog i think we can all recognize and appreciate in the early months of 2020 there was just uncertainty worldwide many people did not know what we were dealing with and there was a measure of of deference and understanding to be granted there but as the months progressed in some corners by some measures it seemed like that fog lifted or was beginning to lift but yet in corners of the church that fog lingered and in some ways it thickened and, and i couldn't help make that analogy around fog obscuring the understanding on the part of church members lady and clergy or, or around what we were supposed to be doing at that moment and it seemed like there was a general fog around what our our mission and purpose was at that time that like we were through the fog because of the fog we lost sight of our, our basic our, our basic mission and a lot of action seemed to f- to flow from that. And to go a little bit more deeply and centrally, it seemed like a lot of the fog related to the place and the role of the Eucharist in our lives. And yet you think of the off statistic a couple of years ago, I think it was the Pew Research Center that said 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. And I can't help but think if those figures were drastically different, the fog would have lifted a lot more quickly or maybe it would not have even been there in the first place. Did, right. do, you, do you think that's a fair characterization? Yes, I do,
1: I do. Because to me, the the Eucharist is the center of my life. And when I was unable to go to mass every day, uh, I was completely thrown out of kilter. It, you mentioned the fog, and I think it, it is appropriate, just to be honest, to say when this first hit, a lot of us were, were frightened. Uh, I was frightened. Uh, you know, the first reports of how contagious this thing was, and how deadly it could be, were enough to get everybody's attention. And the first days, when we were told, oh, you know, the two weeks to flatten the curve, that that didn't sound entirely unreasonable uh, at first. And then, of course, it extended into weeks and months. And now it's looking like possibly years if if public health officials have their way. But yes, uh, if you really think that Going to mass, receiving the Eucharist is the most important thing that you can do, not just on Sunday but any day. Then first of all, you certainly don't accept that it's not essential. It's the most essential thing. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you fight for it. You, you're willing to sacrifice for it. You don't You don't do what so many people do uh, did, which and, and so many of our pastors did, which is say, "Oh, we can't do this." because there are other things more important, like keeping people healthy. Well, no, there's nothing more important. And by the way, this is keeping people healthy uh, on a spiritual level. And uh, sure, listen to your public health officials, listen to your doctors when they're talking about your physical health. But let's not talk about the, your physical health in church. And, but, and by the way, let me just go down a little bit further down that road. That's, I think, one of the other problems here is that we had bishops telling us what to do for our physical health. Right. Uh, and they have no authority to do that, no expertise to do that. If I so, feel sick, I talk to my doctor. I don't talk to my pastor. That's not what he does. That's not his charism. That's not his source of authority.
0: Yeah, and that goes back to the theme of losing sight of one's mission, uh, mm-hmm. how, how a bishop would see fit to, to prescribe uh, medical advice. It suggests there's some confusion there there's there's some fog or it, it really resonated your uh, your statement in your book Contagious Faith why the church must spread hope not fear in a pandemic essentially stating that the the church had and, and again in many places had accepted the heresy that physical health is more important than spiritual health we saw that on display in some ways with bishops and pastors getting into the field of of medical health and medical advice uh, and placing those on on a plane above those of of the spiritual. I want to stick with the discussion and the focus on the Eucharist for a moment. Eighteen months have progressed in this pandemic. We're approaching the date or the window in which the Conference of Bishops in the U.S. is set to release a very much anticipated teaching document on the Eucharistic, on Eucharistic Coherence and integrity, and, and there's been a lot of attention around this forthcoming document. A lot of it through the lens of the receipt of the communion by pro-choice and pro-abortion elected officials who profess the Catholic faith. Uh, but it seems like in this enduring context of of COVID, there's a lot of light that can be shed, and there's there's some thoughtful meditations and responses that the Church can offer regarding the role of the Eucharist in our lives what are your hopes and expectations for this forthcoming document
1: my hopes for this forthcoming document are measured i hope that i hope it doesn't do much damage uh, i am afraid that our bishops have issued so many statements about the relationship particularly the race relationship between pro-abortion politicians, and the reception of the Eucharist. There have been all sorts of statements on that issue. It is clear that the bishops are reluctant to do anything more than issue statements. And when they get together to issue statements, the strength of those statements tends to be watered down to secure a compromise, a consensus. I am not excited about the prospect of another statement on that subject, however wise however good it might be, because it's just another statement I'm looking for action. But you point out that it's not just about that specific issue as it relates to abortion, public support for abortion. It's about Eucharistic coherence. And I would love to see a strong statement on Eucharistic coherence, because that goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago. If you have a coherent attitude towards the Eucharist from a Catholic perspective, nothing and I repeat, nothing uh, takes precedence over it. Nothing compares with it. Everything gives way to the importance of the Eucharist. And if we recover that sense, uh, you know, we 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 need to do a better job of catechesis. We need to do a better job helping people to understand what an unbelievable undes- unbelie- gift this is to receive the Eucharist. And if we're able to do that, then a lot of problems sort of, resolve themselves.
0: I'm not sure how much uh, of this was on display down south but north of the border here in Canada we actually had some p- public health authorities who saw fit to chime in on whether communion should be distributed at all during religious services or the manner in which it should do so. Uh, I draw attention in this regard uh, a public health authority around the the greater Toronto area uh, lumped in communion with other such objects as books, microphones, collection baskets as objects, uh, the distribution of which should be discouraged during religious services. And, and again, just being mindful of this, this forthcoming statement and, and, and teaching document from the, the Bishop's Conference in the US, in light of those types of intrusions by public health authorities into the actual administration of the sacraments, what do you think that means and what type, of dispo- what type of response does that warrant?
1: It means that public officials are, are taking it upon themselves to instruct religious officials on religious affairs, which is just a gross violation of religious freedom. Mm-hmm. You, know, it, you should know as a, an elected official, uh, whatever your faith, you should know that you're on shaky ground when you're telling people how to practice their faith, and particularly if you don't share their faith. Uh, but in any case the only people who should have any say on how to regulate the the celebration of the eucharistic liturgy are the diocesan bishops and if anybody else presumes to tell them what to do they should as quickly and as as tersely as possible tell them uh, stay in your own lane go away you know thank you very much for your advice be quiet mm-hmm. it's just it's not your affair
0: on the on the flip side of, of many of these issues I mean, you hinted at it earlier during the early months of the pandemic and continuing thereafter, there were many voices in the church who were saying that the steps taken by the church to keep churches closed in some pl- in some instances adopt restrictions beyond uh, the scope which the public authorities were calling for that that was an act of charity. This was a demonstration of of love thy neighbor. Where and how do you think that argument breaks down?
1: Well, it breaks down because it's based on that same presumption that the best thing that you can do for your neighbor is to preserve his physical health. Mm -hmm. And that's not the best thing that you can do for your neighbor. The best thing you can do for your neighbor is to bring him closer to Christ. And that's the business of the church. That's the business of evangelization. That's our apostolic mission. So it's wrong right from the start. It's wrong in the nature of charity. I think each of, the, each of the popes in the last 30, 40 years has made a point of saying that the church can't turn into another non-governmental organization mm-hmm. doing humanitarian service throughout the world. So don't do it. Don't tell us that the best way we can serve our neighbor is by doing... Uh, various acts of, of physical help yeah we want to do those things but that is not the most important message of love that we can give them you know if you believe that you have you have the means to secure salvation if you believe that we have the way to eternal life eternal life so that you don't have to worry so much about death then that's a gift much greater than anything else that you can give and if you don't give that, give, that gift, then that's, that's an offense
0: against charity. I, I want to stick with that theme of, of love of neighbor and, and also acknowledgement of the proper competence on the part of civil authorities because we're now seeing both of those issues very much on display in the current context of the discussion around vaccines and, and as the push to increase rates across North America and the world ramps up. Uh, The the messaging for and against vaccination is is reaching a fever pitch, including within the church itself. You've written a lot uh, in recent weeks just on the the mishmash of, of different statements and actions that we've witnessed on the part of various bishops, several major archdioceses: New York, San Diego, Philadelphia, Las Vegas. They've signaled that their priests will not be permitted to support individuals in obtaining exemptions from vaccines. And then on the flip side, uh, out in places like Colorado, we've actually seen the bishops provide a template to the faithful, members of the faithful who are earnestly seeking an exemption from a vaccine mandate on religious grounds, stepping back and trying to make sense of this patchwork of guidance and action. What do you make of all that? What what's your assessment?
1: It's complicated. And let me say from the outset that I'm not a doctor, I'm not a scientist. I don't want to get caught in the scientific debate. Uh, But before we even get into the specifically moral arguments, I do want to note that there are people who, for reasons that look very reasonable to me, don't think it's a good idea medically uh, to take. They worry that the vaccine won't work they worry that the vaccine will have side effects. I am not competent to judge those arguments. Right. I, I happen to believe, I happen to agree with them, uh, but those are legitimate concerns. And you should you should move very, very slowly to tell somebody that he must take a medicine that he thinks might harm, might be more likely to harm him than to help him. Uh, particularly if you're not his doctor. Mm-hmm. That's a very personal decision. But okay, set that aside then. Set the medical issues aside. The next question is the, the moral issue. And that stems from the fact that the vaccines currently on the market were manufactured with or tested against cell lines derived from uh, an aborted fetus, from an abortion which took place years ago. And the moralists, some moralists tell us that that can be justified as a form of what they call remote material cooperation in cases of necessity. So here we come to the next arguable point. Is there a necessity? Is this a grave necessity that that would be sufficient for you to set aside your normal abhorrence of association with these products? Is Is it a grave necessity? Well. Uh, For most people, suffering from COVID is a severe inconvenience. Uh, It's in most cases not life-threatening. The odds of getting the disease are low. The odds of dying from the disease, even if you get it, are low. So there's point two that you could question. Is this a case of grave necessity? Some of us believe that it is important as a pro-life witness to say, I am not going to do this, period. I thought I would take that stand more than a year, well over a year ago, when it became obvious that vaccines were going to be developed for this purpose. And we had plenty of time to state our opposition, to say, do not make these vaccines using these tainted, morally tainted cell lines, And if the only way to make that demand stick is to say, if you do use these cell lines, we won't take it. Uh, So some of us feel this is an important pro-life moral witness, and they're willing to sacrifice uh, on behalf of that moral witness. It is true that the Vatican, in various documents or statements by Pope Francis, a document from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, has said that the use of these vaccines can be justified. To say it can be justified does not mean it must be done. It says it only means you can justify it and if you feel you can justify it, okay, I understand that. but don't tell me that I am required to do it, particularly since the doctrine from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on the document on exactly this topic said it must be voluntary, must be voluntary which is only common sense. It must always be voluntary that you decide what is injected into your body. Uh, so the idea that the Catholic Church is requiring people to be vaccinated, is, it just can't be sustained. And yet there are bishops of the Catholic Church who are penalizing people uh, who aren't vaccinated. And I, I don't see how that can stand.
0: Mm -hmm. It seems very much a lot of contradictions and incoherence are at play there. In the show notes for this episode, we're going to make sure to post a link to an article uh, one of your colleagues posted at catholicculture.org. A a great article in many respects, but in particular because it it distilled and boiled down the key moral questions and considerations that are, are at play here. And stepping back and looking at the big picture in terms of the moral teachings that Catholics must and should abide by in this scenario, principally being the following, that uh, as you say, vaccines are are not a moral obligation. They're being encouraged in this instance. Their use uh, has been deemed to be morally permissible, but it's not a moral obligation. What is a moral obligation, however, clearly, is the duty to reject products that are created from human cell lines derived from abortion. Uh, And we all have a responsibility to play in that respect in terms of advocating and pushing for alternative products and another key moral obligation at play is the imperative to obey our conscience to ensure that our conscience is properly formed uh, but ultimately at the end of the day to obey our conscience and i can't help but think that particularly on that latter point for catholics like like yourself uh, for many of us who have conscientious objections to the vaccines, in being mandated again not by the the civil authorities but by your own bishop to receive the vaccine, it seems like there's there's a a very problematic contradiction at, at play here. And among the questions it raises is how is the voice of uh, the church, or the voice of bishops, or an individual bishop, how is it supposed to be taken seriously, not just by members of the faithful, but by the outside world, when we have these contradictions and inconsistencies so clearly on display?
1: Why you, now, you've, that's a good question, Patrick. Now I have, I have half a dozen different things I want to <laughs> say at the same time. So uh, first, I, I just want to underline something that you said there, that we have a moral obligation to lobby for acceptable vaccines acceptable medications and that moral that moral obligation doesn't go away if you take the vaccine on the contrary it's all the stronger and i wish i had heard that point underlined by any one of the bishops who is now telling us that we need to take this vaccine we still have an obligation i wish it had been i wish i heard some bishop uh, rallying the public to demand a vaccine that's not morally tainted. I have heard none of that. And it's clear as day that in church teaching and all of the church teachings on this subject, that that is a moral obligation. The second point that you make is my conscience. There have been bishops saying there is no Catholic moral argument against vaccination. Well, that's wrong. Mm. That's just flat wrong. Because, well, I've given you the Catholic moral argument, but also it boils down to this. For reasons which I think I have demonstrated are reasonable and certainly not in contradiction to church teaching, I believe in conscience that I can't take this vaccine. My conscience forbids it. Now, if my conscience forbids it, the Catholic Church tells me I cannot work against my conscience. I cannot act against my conscience. It doesn't matter. If my bishop tells me I can, it doesn't matter if the pope tells me I can. Uh, The church tells me, don't disobey your conscience. Uh, Therefore, the church in this case tells me, don't take the vaccine. That's a Catholic moral argument. And then you make the point that when there are these contradictions that are really fairly easy to point out, and not only that, but when there are flat out contradictions, you know, when one bishop is saying, that there can be no moral argument and priests shouldn't help people to seek exemptions from a mandate and another bishop is saying here's why you should you can seek an exemption and here's how we'll help you uh that leaves the faithful in a quandary we don't know where to turn and Mm -hmm. when you see this sort of uh confusion in the hierarchy and contradiction in the hierarchy, contradicting each other, contradicting church teachings, it makes people think that everything is up for grabs. And of right. course,
0: that's, that's destructive to the faith. It, it's been very instructive and revealing for Catholics north of the border here in Canada. I don't know what the case was in the United States, but one of the few instances uh, in recent memory when uh, all of the bishops collectively issued a statement on something related to COVID. It was in relation to the vaccines and encouraging members of the faithful uh, to receive the vaccine, characterizing it as a as an act of charity towards our neighbor. But there was no collective voice. There was no collective statement from the bishops in the early stages and the middle stages of the pandemic when the churches were closed. That sends a very powerful message. So the, our access to the sacraments were restricted, and it, it just seemed like the collective voice of the bishops was silent on that on that matter. And yet, when it comes to the vaccines, there's a collective voice to be expressed. And the incongruence there is confusing, and, and it's something that that many of us are still trying to sort out. There was a chapter in your book, uh, very aptly titled, Leper Colonies. And really, the, th- the theme from that book was, too many times over the course of this pandemic, w- what we've seen on display, or the, the type of mentality that's crept into our society is now being very wary of our neighbors and essentially just trying to keep them at bay uh, and, and seeing them as nothing more than than a risk to our health or or to our family's health. And I, I want to get your comments on again coming back to what the role and the mission of the church is in this type of instance. It, it seems like the tradition of the te- the tradition and the teaching of the church is reaching out to the marginalized, making sure making sure they're they're ministered to and having that preferential sense or that that preferential posture for people on the peripheries but but now it seems like we're actually contributing in some ways to that marginalization do you think that's a fair characterization uh,
1: i i think you could even put it in stronger words that it's there's something really wrong when you start making distinctions between the vaccinated and the unvaccinated in terms of who, who can come to church, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all are welcome, we're told, except the people who aren't vaccinated. And, and uh, you know, all are welcome, except the people who aren't wearing masks. This is, as I pointed out in Contagious Faith, it's the first time that bishops seem to have been troubled that people weren't properly dressed for masks because <laughs> right. they, weren't, right. they weren't wearing Masks. But also, you know, look at what has happened to people during the lockdown. The damage that this is another thing that I try to emphasize in the book in Contagious Faith is the damage that has been done to people, disproportionately those people on the margin, the needy. uh, The damage that's been done by the lockdown because they've been isolated, the people who aren't able to get the help they need from their neighbors or from mental health officials. You know, the soaring rates of drug abuse, of of drug overdose deaths, of suicides, of domestic violence, these are people who needed help, who needed charitable interventions of various sorts, maybe just needed assistance, maybe just needed somebody to talk to, but didn't have it and, and still aren't getting it. And the people who, you know, a lot of us, frankly, I, I have been relatively comfortable uh, during the lockdown. I work out of my house, you know, I don't have to leave. I don't have to wear a mask. There are an awful lot of people who have to go to work and have to wear a mask all day. Uh, and there's, for them, it's much more of an inconvenience, much more of a suffering. And there are a lot of people who don't have jobs because of what has happened here. Uh, and we let a lot of people slip through the cracks over these past months. A lot of people lost jobs, lost lost work, lost their life savings. A lot of people lost their families. It's terrible to see what this has done to families, families that are torn apart. You know, people, mm-hmm. I, I know so many people haven't seen their, their grandchildren or their grandfathers or their cousins or even their siblings because they have different ideas of what's safe. And it's not safe for me to talk to my parents. You know, it's, this is, it's, it's, tremendous amount of
0: damage that has been done. I mean, here in Ontario, here in many Canadian provinces, and my understanding as well in in some U.S. jurisdictions, we're starting to see the quote-unquote vaccine passports roll out. At least here in our backyard as of yet, it's not yet applicable to being able to go to church. I'm not sure if there are movements in that direction in the United States, but what do you think it would signal if uh, some churches or some diocese adopt this, this vaccine passport or this vaccine check requirement for mass? And what are your expectations in, the, in, your, in that regard? Do you think that's going to happen?
1: I don't think it will happen. I'm, I'm holding out. I've been disappointed so many times, but I'm holding out hope that, that some sanity will prevail. I'm holding out hope, too, that people will start to realize there is a limit to how much we can accept and how much we can endure. Mm-hmm. And the, the price that we can pay for a, a relatively small improvement in our, if it's an improvement at all. I mean, as we speak, the rates of, of COVID inf- infection have gone up in the places where there's the heaviest rate of vaccination. So the, the vaccine is not working in that respect. So how long will people say Let's keep doing what we're doing and hope for a different result, which you know is the popular definition of insanity. Uh, And how how many shots are we willing to take? And now we're hearing about a booster every six months. Is that every six months for life? I mean, is there any light at the end of the tunnel? Is there a point at which people will say, "Okay, enough. We have we have done a lot. It hasn't worked." I understand there is a movement in that in that direction in Denmark to for the government to say our policies have not worked. We we need to stop, uh, and you know we, it was at C.S. Lewis who says that when you're you know when you're heading in the wrong direction, the man who turns around and starts walking backwards is the most progressive man in the field. <laughs> uh, I, I'm hoping that we'll see some of that reaction.
0: In our last few minutes here, just uh, sticking with that theme of what's at the end of the tunnel, how we get there, a good springboard into the to that conversation is an anecdote from your book Contagious Faith. You talked about a chaplain friend of yours who served in Iraq and was administering the last rites uh, to dying soldiers as the bullets were whizzing by. The argument you make in your in your book seems to be, it starts in, and it begins with reclaiming that fervor and that zeal for the sacraments. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little further.
1: We do need to reclaim that. And in insofar as we're not having energetic church leadership pushing in that direction we need to energize our our leaders and one thing that i have been recommending in all of the conversations that i've had about with people since uh, since the book was published i've been recommending get together with your pastor get together with your bishop and let him know, we can't have another shutdown of the churches. We cannot. We will not. We will do whatever we have to do uh, to get the sacraments. So please don't try to deprive us of the sacraments again, because we won't. We can't accept it. We can't. As, you know, as fathers to our children, uh, we can't accept this. We have to keep the churches open. And tell, our, tell your pastors, tell your bishops, we understand that the time might come when you will take flack for keeping churches open, for, for administering the, it's the sacraments. And if that time comes, we are going to be with you. you we will be your best friends. We will be supporting you. Uh, if the time comes when Catholics have to rally uh, in civil disobedience, count on us. We'll be there on the sidewalks with you. We'll go to jail before you will. We need to give our, our pastors a clear indication, first, that they must do their duty, and second, that if they do, we will support them. We expect it of them, and we'll support them.
0: Amen. Well said. After putting down your book, it, it occurred to me: Wow, I mean, what if, what if next summer on Corpus Christi, in every diocese and every parish, you know, we just had an epic Eucharistic procession uh, through every neighborhood? I mean, just just imagine the fruits could come from that, and the fire that could come from that. Those, no those-
1: question. No question. Well, actually, in my parish, we did. Uh, on Corpus Christi, have an epic corp- procession <laughs> through the streets, and it was wonderful. It, it, I think, great things came of it.
0: Phil, it's been a real privilege. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, kudos to you and your colleagues for the yeoman's work you're doing on thank this you. topic and and so many other issues. For our listeners, you can check them out. Catholic World News, uh, made available through CatholicCulture.org. Not only great insights and commentary on the issues of the day. Uh, but as the theme of your book, so so clearly illustrated, this is a time where we need a lot of hope, and it's wonderful. We're very grateful for the hope that you and your colleagues are instilling in us, and uh, and and pointing us towards. So thank you for all that you do, and and thanks for being with us here today.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you for those kind words. It was it was a great pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. And help us to reach more listeners by leaving us a rating or referring us to a friend. If you'd like to partner with us in the delivery of this podcast, head on over to our website at crownandcrozier.com and click the heart button in the top right-hand corner to learn more about making a one-time or monthly donation. We're sincerely grateful for you listening in, and we look forward to providing you with future episodes on church, state, and faithful citizenship. Until then, God bless.